Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Connecting the Dots. I'm your host, Navi Joswal, the founder of the Versa Foundation and the Divinity Research Program. Connecting the Dots is all about whole food plant-based living, intersectional veganism, and matters key to public and planetary health. Today, we have the wonderful Dr. Leila Kasim with us. She has a deep background in international development, is an acclaimed author, a vegan activist, and a co-founder of the Animal Think Tank in the UK. Welcome, uh, Leila, to the show. Thank you, Nivi. It's lovely to be here. Okay, so let's start uh, with your personal story. How did you go vegan? Oh, well, I think um, that was in, well, I'll start in 2010. I started meditating and um, getting really interested in spirituality and um, wanting to live a, a non-violent life and to live a mindful life and a conscious life. Um, so yeah, I started meditating and um, when it came to eating, a burger or a steak I would look at my plate and suddenly for the first time see what it actually was which was the corpse of a tortured animal um, so I went vegetarian um, and it took me I'm ashamed to say three years to kind of you know fully realize that you know the dairy industry and the egg industry is all part of the same oppressive violence system um, and so I went vegan three years later and as it happens when I when I went vegetarian I was actually I just started my PhD um, and I was looking at the impact of fish farming on poverty in in Ghana and so I think there was this kind of thing in my head which was like well you know I I'm, I'm sort of looking at animal exploitation for a good thing. Um, and so I, I feel like I couldn't quite make the step to veganism. And, and when I handed in my PhD, was, then I went vegan. And so I think something shifted unconsciously in my mind. So yeah, that was, um, that was quite a while ago now. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much uh, about sharing, uh, for sharing that. And you mentioned that you were doing your PhD and um, you were already invested in this, you know, big academic program, obviously. You weren't vegan, but you achieved this vegan consciousness sometime mm -hmm. during that time. Mm -hmm. that, that's really interesting. Um, like, did that involve changing you know, the topic of your research or did you just end up blending it somehow in and bringing your vegan ethic to the work that you were doing back then? No, I mean, so so throughout my PhD, I was vegetarian. Um, and I, you know, I was, when I was in Ghana doing my field research, I was, I was going to fish farms and I was watching them being harvested. And I, you know, I just, so, I mean, I wasn't eating fish and I just, it was, it was so difficult because I was like, but I'm working with poor farmers. They don't have a choice. At least that's what I thought at the time. So somehow I just kind of, um, I don't know, I just contained it or, or thought, well, I have the privilege, they don't have the privilege. And, I, and to a certain extent, I still I still believe that. I think we've, we've all got different abilities or different barriers to being able to live in alignment with our values. Um, 
And yeah, so once I'd finished and I'd gone vegan, I I became like this expert in fish farming in Africa for poverty and food security. And that was how I was making my living. So I carried on consulting on these projects, which were focused on food security and poverty, but through things like fish farming. And I carried on um, for a few years, just getting increasingly more um, upset and disgusted. And and for, for many more reasons than just the sort of my vegan ethic, I was also... Um, really feeling that the whole development industry was immoral and neo-colonial um, and so in 2017 so I guess like four years after I'd gone vegan I just thought I can't do this anymore I can't do it anymore and I, I just I stopped and luckily my partner's amazing and he was like finally <laughs> finally you, you you've come to your senses um, yeah and I, I ended up spending about six months um, in bed reading and um, trying to put all of the jigsaw pieces together of like my animal liberation kind of ethics, what I'd been experiencing in development and kind of like human oppression and also, you know, making the connections with our destruction of the natural world. So um, that was a real, you know, ending my development career and then taking space to really reflect on my experiences over the last 15 years was a really, really important and like it was an inflection point in my life, really. Right, clearly. And and then you started working on a project, which was a book project. You, you're an acclaimed author. You <laughs> co-authored this book with uh, with your father, um, Dr. Amir Kassam. And uh, I'm just going to pull it up on the screen. Um, rethinking food and agriculture. And and this is, I've had the you know opportunity and, and the honor of reading this book uh, written by you and Dr. Kassam. Um, and what I found amazing was, this is one of those unique books where you read about international development, you read about food systems, food transformation, but you also read about animal ethics and uh, veganism and whole food uh, plant-based and veganic farming. Now, now that's something unique and that's a first. Tell us about this. Tell us about this project. Well, um, firstly, Nivi, I think you're the only one who acclaims me as an author. <laughs> I, um, I, I, I really don't even, I don't like that label because it, I mean, I co-edited that book with my father and it's filled with um, chapters from amazing forward-thinking activists and academics and um, practitioners. Um, there's so much wisdom in that book and it was just such a a privilege to be able to bring to help to bring that together um and so the sort of, i often say that it, it's the book that i wanted to read and i couldn't find um and you know i in that period of when i sort of like decided to end my career in development and and sort of you know try and connect the dots between all these issues i was reading amazing books but just on like one aspect on animal liberation on food system transformation which didn't include an animal liberation ethic um except and, and like environmental issues that didn't include um you know domesticated animals in in their circle of like moral concern so um yeah it's the book that i wanted to read but couldn't find um and it it brings together animal liberation perspectives on on, on development as neo-colonialism um, decentralizing power in the food system like we we are functioning within a corporate food regime and and you know we have to decentralize power like that and and um, through things like food sovereignty and localization um, we've got chapters challenging you know GMOs 
um, there's, there's so much in there. Um, and yeah, as you say, there's, there's quite a few chapters looking at sort of animal liberation, animal ethics. There's a chapter, um, a brilliant chapter by Nassim Nobari that looks at the, the role of, of, of social movements and grassroots social movements in creating transformative change for food systems and looks at veganic agroecology. Um, yeah, and, and there's, a, there's a chapter by my sister, well, both my sisters actually, who are, um, who are medics and lifestyle physicians um, looking at the role of plant-based, or the scientific and clinical evidence underlying plant-based diets for both human and planetary health. So it was a family affair, let's say, and also, um, yeah, just brought together some of my favorite voices um, from different sectors. Yeah, I, I do remember, you know, reading another chapter, which I believe uh, you uh, co-authored along with Jim Mason, and, and that talks about impact of domestication historically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so first of all, Jim, the, the chapter was really by Jim. It's based on his 1993 book called An Unnatural Order. And that was one of the books that I read when I was sitting in bed trying to work out what, you know, how to view the world. And it, it I would re highly recommend it to everyone. It's just such a powerful book and it looks at you know um how we were more than ten thousand years ago before settled agriculture as sort of forager hunters or mainly foragers um and and the impact when, of, of 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 when we started domesticating other animals and herding other animals and the kind of um the social stratification that came about because of that you know um if we the mentality of, of of oppressing and exploiting other animals was kind of um you know soon we started to view women the way that we used to you know that we that we currently view livestock in inverted commas as breeders and um and 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 also in terms of you know developing class and wealth categories and and um the herding culture he talks about is very expansionary by necessity because of the land and water that's constantly needed because it's very degrading and so it requires sort of war and 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 yeah claiming other you know claiming land and um uh and resources from others so there's so much that has come about because of our domestication of other animals that i just i don't see um in many places or is even like acknowledged and i think that's so much of part of the root causes actually of, of the multiple interconnected crises that we're facing right now i mean uh, our domestication of other like okay um capitalism the word capital you know it comes from like heads cows the word for war comes from you know sanskrit for um desire for more cows i mean it's so entangled with how we you know with with our current society and how we've set it up that um it's really really fascinating yeah yeah and, and you're you're so right you know so our monetary system our uh you know i don't know rules of kinship um, you know, inheritance, all of those somehow and, and our definitions of progress, right? So when we talk about sustainable development goals and all of that international development vocabulary, it just uh, feels as though it's very extractive in mindset. Um, and, and we want to value extract out of things and we uh, then ascribe profit to that. And, and in doing so, we become del de delusioned about what might be the actual purpose of what it is that we're trying to accomplish. Um, so you co-founded Animal Think Tank to set a lot of those things right. Tell us about <laughs> Animal Think Tank. 
Right. Well, I mean, Animal Think Tank is, is looking at that, is really looking at the animal liberation piece. Um, and we, um, our mission is to support the building of a powerful and broad-based social movement for animal freedom in the UK. And we are working towards a world where all individual animals have their rights to life, liberty and um, security of person protected, both in law and embraced and respected by society. So we're really trying to bring about both legislative, so structural change, and cultural change, a shift in consciousness. I mean, ultimately, I think what we're trying to do, I mean, I don't know if other people in Animal Think Tank agree with me, but I think I feel that we're trying to change ultimately our relationship with other animals um, and come back into right relationship with other animals and also ourselves and each other and the natural world. It is all connected. Um, so yeah, so we, we uh, co-founded, me and two others co-founded this a few years ago. Um, we spent a year, uh, the three of us, in, in a living room workshopping ideas. And then we, we got some funding and we started to grow. Um, and yeah, we're now seven and we're recruiting for another four currently. So by 2023, we're aiming to grow to about 30. And basically what we're about is, is um, we want to seed a social movement organization for other animals. And I often explain it, like if you think of Extinction Rebellion, we're doing the same for um, animal freedom. And with Extinction Rebellion, you know, a group of them spent 18 months conceptualizing um, the DNA of their movement, the principles and values, the strategy, etc. Um, and we're kind of in that stage at the moment. All right, and and you have uh, uh, openings, so people who around the world are welcome to uh, <laughs> you know apply. I'm just going to put that on the screen. Tell us a little bit about these roles that you have. Um, yeah. Um, so we are we are expanding right now, um, and so we've got. Uh, and, and I should say that uh, I think the deadline has passed for all of them now. Um, we've started interviewing this week, so we've got we've, we're recruiting for a political strategist, um, a social movement culture lead, and you know that's that's kind of my area. I look after culture in the organisation, and you know, so what is the, what is the culture of our movement going to be? What are the principles and values? What are the conflict transformation systems, um, the care systems, all of those sorts of things? Um, what other two? A corpus linguist who is going to help us with our narrative work and um, the final one, oh, a lead coordinator, probably the most high impact role. Um, so in a kind of normal organization, this would be, I guess, the CEO. Like I suppose at the moment we're kind of, um, we're, we're a board, even though we're not, we're not um, what's the word, structured in a traditional way. But um, yeah, so we're looking for a lead coordinator as well. Um, and we've had some amazing applicants. Um, and it, honestly, I'm just like, I'm, we don't, we, we, we are a volunteer based organization. We have um, a needs based salary. So it's not like what you would get in an NGO. We're quite, you know, we don't want to become an NGO. I think that's um, a lot of where the problems are in terms of the nonprofit industrial complex. And so, you know, it's, it's asking people to sacrifice in terms of um, having like a a, a good salary but you know we more than make up for it in terms of purpose and and so I think the fact that we've got these such great applicants it really fills me with hope that there are people who are willing to devote their lives um to something bigger than themselves and yeah it's really exciting 
Ah, exciting times and absolutely, especially when the future of human beings and indeed planet Earth depends on it. Uh, yeah. And, you know, planetary boundaries have been approached and and breached uh, mercilessly. And, and we still, you know, don't have to see, uh, you know, don't seem to have it all together. And, and you mentioned this word uh social movements uh you know and uh I, I know that we even titled this show as what's veganism got to do with social movements you know there's enough that i need to do the explaining around intersectional veganism and how it's not just about this but it's also about connecting the dots and therefore why we do this show um tell us a little bit about um what is a social movement you know give us a couple of examples of and, and why you believe at Animal Think Tank that veganism, animal rights needs to be a social movement. Right. Well, I mean, I think there's so many different definitions of what social movement is. But like a, an example that I think everybody can relate or most people can relate to is like Black Lives Matter, Extinction Rebellion. Um, you know, it's, it's diverse individuals, groups, organizations working towards some kind of social change. Um, and the way that we actually conceptualize it in Animal Think Tank, which I think is quite, it's quite unique, I think. Uh, and I think it's one of our, one of our sort of, I guess, um, the way that we look at things quite broadly is that we look at um, social movements and successful social movements as an ecology of, of change. And when you look at successful social movements like the civil rights movement or Indian independence or so many of the changes that have happened in society have come about through um, collective action, mass protest, people actually being disruptive and sacrificing for the cause. But it's not just that piece. Um, there's also lobbying and party politics. There is individual change, going vegan, um, you know, uh, leadership development, you know, all, all sorts of things. And then there's also building alternatives, alternatives vision, alternative visions of the future. So co-housing projects. Um, veganic farming. So all of these pieces are needed in a successful social movement ecology. And what we found, or what you know, in the UK, um, when we started, there really wasn't any organization that was doing sort of the mass protest, civil disobedience, the kind the really disruptive um type of action that is about shifting public opinion. Um, and so that's kind of what we're focusing on um, right now. We're focusing on seeding a social movement organization for animal freedom. Um, and we, we, a year and a half ago, I think it was, we seeded Animal Rebellion, which um, your viewers may or may not have heard of um, as a kind of ally to Extinction Rebellion, part of their movement of movements um, to test out our theories. And also because there was an opportunity, I mean, uh, and it's a growing opportunity because the climate issue is so urgent and people are so like galvanized around it. Um, and we saw an opportunity to actually bring the animal um, agriculture and, and, and fishing industry message and the plant-based food system message to the environmental movement. Um, so now there is, you know, a civil disobedience type of organization in the UK ecology, but we want to, to seed one which is a, an anti-speciesist one, um, not necessarily only about the environment. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting with all these diverse examples that you gave. Um, uh, when I think, uh, you know, having grown up in India and been exposed to the Gandhian philosophy of how India achieved its independence, um, you mentioned civil disobedience and, you know, uh, boycotting the industry and, uh, and, and also doing it in a way which is through, um, 
you know, civic and civil, you know, uh, disobedience and, and not necessarily, uh, I don't know, waging war, which seems to be the vocabulary of, uh, you know, this military industrial complex that we're, uh, we all tend to de define and describe our progress and growth and which obviously is, you know, leading to uh, planetary annihilation at this point. So that needs massive change. And, and in my previous conversations with you, Lela, you've mentioned this concept called theory of change. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think that our viewers, many of them who run nonprofit organizations or for-profit vegan businesses and so on, you know, they're or they're just you know an activist and and an advocate, and they really want to do something about this and uh, might want to think about it from an organizational standpoint. So, uh, what what is animal think tanks? theory of change. And, and before you talk about that, just give us a little bit of an education around what is theory of change? Well, I mean, I think theory of change, I can explain it very, very simply. It really is what it sounds like. It's what is our beliefs about how change is made. Um, and and I, you know, I think I think the, the term actually comes from the development sort of industry. Um, and I have been and, and in many projects, that I worked in I don't think that they actually had explicitly understood or or clarified what how is it that we believe that change is made it was just kind of like doing stuff you know um and similarly I think what I've you know in in the animal um freedom movement you know many organizations haven't actually clarified what it is or how it is that they think change is made um and so when we're talking about the sort of social movement ecology framework it is so useful um for understanding the different theories of change that are happening i mean so veganism there is an underlying assumption or theory of change that well individual change can lead to broader societal changes. Um, the sort of mass protest um, civil disobedience group, you know, their th the theory of change is, you know what, power is held by the people, we give it away to, um, you know, our power holders, we can reclaim that through not complying, um, and, and, and shift public opinion in the process, and then like, basically force politicians and power holders to um, to kind of follow our lead and actually make changes because they're being forced to through, um, you know, increased public active and, and sort of passive public opinion. So there, there's lots of different theories of change. And then, of course, there are, there's a theory of change if you're looking at sort of um, party politics and lobbying. It's kind of like, you know, you're focusing on those on, on the system and changing the system from the inside. Um, and I used to think, oh, well, no, we can't change things from the inside. And, oh, we can't change things through individual change. We, we just need structural change. Actually, all of it's needed. And for a really, I think, successful movement and movement ecology, um, you need all of those pieces in place. And there is a creative synergy that happens um, when everybody's kind of doing their thing and understanding what each of the other groups are doing so there's not a like I'm right and you're wrong my way is better your way is not good it's understanding our place in the broader context and that is a really really important for us at Animal Think Tank um, and different different roles and different theories of change come to prominence at different points in the movement cycle. So often when you look at social justice movements that have been successful, the sort of takeoff stage, um, that's where your rebels, your direct action activists are, you know, pushing 
the issue out into the public consciousness and they're doing their thing. And then once they've got the public's attention and maybe the power holders attention, that's when the kind of reformers or the NGOs or those who are used to interfacing with you know, policymakers, they come to the forefront to codify the changes that are being pushed for by the rebels. Um, and so it's like, we all we all have a role to play in this movement cycle um, and also in the ecology. And so that I think that's a broader, that's our broader theory of change, that we need all of those things to be, to create transformative change. Yeah, that's very interesting. You know, as you were talking about this, I was thinking about the challenger brand theory. I, I, I don't know if you've heard about that. Um, it's, it's frequently used in, um, you know, consumer marketing, consumer advertising, innovation, practical innovation, product innovation kind of a, you know, um, uh, landscape. And um, Adam Morgan, who's also based in the UK, um, was the author of the book called The Pirate Inside. And, and they talk about how uh, there is a necessary level of piracy, you know, that you need um, while you're working inside the larger establishment of the Navy, for example, and, and where that necessary rebellion needs to be seeded, because if you don't, then then, then the big established, you know, the power holders uh, that you were mentioning can get away with a lot of things, um, you know, which may not be for the good of uh, mm -hmm. the society or the world at large. So he wrote The Pirate Inside. Uh, there was another book called Eating the Big Fish, you know, which is the whole narrative of David versus Goliath and how do you really take on this Goliath? And, and in the end, they came up with the challenger brand, um, theory and and you can you can be a challenger brand as long as you're challenging a dominant mindset and and that that there's a role for every organization um and different types of organizations to take the baton you know so to speak from another in that life cycle of change that that you're talking about so it's very in interesting that there's uh you know i've been exposed to that uh in in the corporate world and uh, I, I just so wish that we used this and all of those ideas that are already, you know, with us uh, for true purpose and not, not just for the purpose of profit, you know, personal or financial. So, um, so okay, so to have the theory of change in place, you know, the animal uh, think tank is working on it. You've also, um, in, in our conversations, really emphasized the, the importance of organization building. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about that. Oh my goodness, I could talk about this all day. Um, this is this is what we have been focusing on at Animal Think Tank for the last, um, I guess, year and a half now. And it's kind of, you know, before I got involved with Animal Think Tank, I wouldn't have known why it's important. I mean, maybe I would have intellectually known why it's important, but, you know, governance and processes and systems, that sounds really boring. Um, and yet it is absolutely fundamental um, to actually having organizations that last, to having cultures where and creating conditions where people can thrive and bring their best selves, um, having clarity around who makes decisions, where authority lies. Um, it's something that I think that you know many of us are not skilled in necessarily we've had to do a lot of learning and and there's loads there's so much literature though out there that's that's really really good and really really helpful um but you know I think a lot of us have come from activist backgrounds we have like a group of friends um that we go and do actions with and it's kind of like well 
you know, we can figure stuff out. We don't need to write down the rules or any of those sorts of things. And I think, you know, our experience is that, um, you know, we started off as a group of, um, you know, friends, I suppose. Um, and we brought, we brought um, people on and wanted to grow. Uh, and we were all, you know, friendly and we're all good people and, you know, we should be able to work stuff out. And I think, you know, one of our issues is that we probably grew quicker and we got more complex than our processes and systems would allow. And well, we didn't have any. Um, and, you know, people have different levels of tolerance to uncertainty and not quite knowing what's going on and, and things. So um, I think what I found is, is, is like building those foundations of, systems process and when I talk about systems I mean I can talk about very concretely what we've done um, you know we have we have now developed a system for decision making for conflict transformation for resource allocation for care connection and support um, and for information flow um, and for feedback um, and to make those things explicit and transparent so everybody kind of knows what's going on. Also making our roles really explicit and our accountabilities. Um, you know, those are kind, I suppose those are kind of like the hard systems, but also like our identity. Who are we? What do we value? Um, and so, we've, you know, we've spent a, long, a lot of time actually articulating what are our core values and what are the values that we need in order to actually achieve our mission. Actually, even getting a mission statement what are we doing why are we doing it how are we going to do it you know that's that's you know the mission statement doesn't seem very long but there's a lot of thinking and a lot of discussions and a lot of process that went on behind the scenes and all of that is so important to get everybody on the same page and to make sure that we have a co-created and shared vision and everybody's kind of like you know moving in the same direction um and then culturally i think um you know, so much of organization building is, is around culture. And, you know, that's my, that's my area. And I think we focus a lot on the doing and the, like the work. And, um, but I think I can't, I think I realized quite a while ago that it doesn't matter if we've got like 20 really, really smart people in the room, if they don't feel psychologically safe, if they don't trust each other, if, yeah. um, if, you know, they, we can't bring our best, we can't bring our creative ideas we can't take risks because of fear of criticism judgment um etc so um you know and there's there's such a paradigm shift i think that we'll, you know we're trying to i guess prefigure the society that we want to see and actually incorporate that into our practices you know as far as i'm concerned the means um are the ends so we also have to like you know act and behave and um you know function in ways that that are actually probably contradictory to a lot of the the values and the ways of behaving in sort of more conventional hierarchical um profit-driven corporations let's say and so there's a lot of unlearning that we've had to do um you know just very simply like thinking about how we deal with conflict and how we're so sort of conditioned to think in terms of right and wrong and good and bad and a sort of punitive mindset around around conflict and tensions and shifting that to a more restorative or transformative approach to conflict. It's just like one example. Our approach to power, um, you know, in in a lot of activist spaces, um, you know, we don't have any leaders and we're all equal. Um, and so any kind of, I guess, somebody stepping into leadership over and above a certain point is kind of like 
you know, dragged down a little bit. And actually, if we want to be powerful and win, we need everyone to step into their full power. We're not all equal, we have equal value, but we have different things to bring. Um, and so I think unlearning and relearning a different way of approaching all of these things, it might not feel might not have seemed important to me a few years ago but through experience I think these are the things that we've been working on and yeah I feel like I, I really feel like we've we, we've spent a lot of time um, building sort of strong foundations to now be able to grow I think faster um, as a result of um, and the final thing I'll say is is so much of it depends on having like the right people and I don't mean the right there's right people and wrong people but people who fit with yeah. your vision and your values and I think when we started well, a year and a half ago when we were bringing people on I don't think we could properly articulate who we were and what we wanted and what we needed um, and so maybe we made decisions based on who we connected with or who you know you know plus skills and 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 on all of that but now I think we've got a much better idea of who we are. And so we can attract people who are who are attracted to the thing, you know, who we are. Um, and having the right people um, makes life a lot easier. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, well, I, I do have a corporate for-profit kind of a background and for many, yeah. many years longer than I have been part of the nonprofit uh, kind of a, you know, side of things. And, and I do agree, you know, a lot of activists bring a lot of passion and, and they'll bring uh, their wounds to the movement. And, and there's a lot of that. And, uh, and, and sometimes, you know, uh, what's missing is um, the rule book. Like, how, how are you going to do this? You know, it's great. You've got a lot of passion. You've got a lot of ideas. But how are we channeling that energy into something that it becomes executable, becomes implementable, and, and then, uh, you know, has uh, the power of that unified vision behind it? And, and as you were talking, I was thinking about it's so important for the movement to organize because who we're up against are hyper-organized. Yeah. They are a very well-oiled machinery with, with, um, with the rule book written, I don't know, 100 years ago as to how do you do innovation? How do you bring ideas to the fore? How are those debated? When do you do conversations of possibility? Then you move on to conversations of feasibility. And then you get into gatekeeping and who's going to gatekeep that? And, and the ideas and theories of leadership also uh, come up, you know, in terms of, uh, are you going to make it more sociocratic? Are you going to make it more military command and control? And, and uh, uh, there's a lot of for-profit, uh, you know, in the, there's a lot of change that is going on right now in the for-profit world as well. You know, when you look at the country of Singapore, they've created a hub which uh, actually focuses on sociocracy you know, more than on uh, this traditional conventional idea of, you know, creating hierarchy. So there are many models out there. Yeah. And, and it sounds like that at Animal Think Tank, you're really, really, you've taken the time um, to absorb the learnings you've had. You've um, invested the effort to codify vision, who we are, what are we doing, written out a mission statement that everyone can be behind and, and not just be, you know, fueled with, passion alone but actually bring both passion and professionalism mm -hmm. together all right so um you've spoken about theory of change you've spoken about organization building um what other you know projects are you involved at 
at um, Animal Think Tank. Like, what's next? You, you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Okay, so I think um, what what are we working on right now as an organization building? Well, we are um, focusing on developing um, our meta narrative and our story based strategy, and that is um, a really I think it's a really key part of our offering. Hopefully, to the movement, um, we, you know, we want to be strategic, and the idea is that we, you know, um, we have some kind of a grand objective and then can can identify key strategic milestones in order to be able to achieve that objective but i, th I think that the and that's quite con that's quite conventional um you know sort of basic strategy but um there is this aspect of actually being um guided by a narrative that can actually speak to people's existing values rather than trying to superimpose a new set of values onto society um, and the best way that I can sort of explain why or how this is important is um, the freedom to marry movement so the kind of um, you know the LGBT movement in the US was not having a huge amount of success with the kind of rights based narrative because um, it wasn't resonating with half the population but when they changed their narrative to you know freedom to love to commit to um you know to to have a family um i think within like 10 years or 11 years they were able to um to succeed in terms of the the right to marry um and i think um so we are trying to come up with our what so what is what is the story that's going to reach people um currently when it comes to animal freedom and you know the go, the go vegan message is not going, it, it's not, I, we don't think it's the ideal message um, because it actually, you know, going against sort of um, liberal and sort of individualistic um, values of like the freedom of choice, basically. Um, so we often joke that we're going to end up with a, with a narrative of like, you know, animal lovers or something like that. But that's kind of, that's kind of, um, yeah. And and I say this, there's a lot of, we're doing, well, we want to do quite a bit of research around how people actually talk in different demographics, different sectors of society talk about animals currently. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the roles we're advertising for is a corpus linguist who can actually do that research work. So um, I think that's quite an exciting um, project that we're on. So it's a story-based strategy. And that's also, we want to develop that in, in relationship and in collaboration with other other organizations within the movement because there's no point in us coming up with like what we think is a great narrative and nobody else uh, you know is sort of buying buying into it so it's kind of like what is our equivalent of black lives matter right. um, for, for the animal movement that we can kind of as as a wider movement um sort of get behind we don't have to get behind the exact right vision like one vision but it's like what is the narrative that we can all get behind and push um, yeah, so that that's I think one of our main projects. Another one I think is um, we, the, um, with with the before you before you move on, I, yeah. I'm really excited about the meta narrative that you mm -hmm. speak about. You know, as as a consumer behaviorist myself, you know, this is something which is in the realm of behavior change, and and it's very yeah. very difficult to make that delta happen without um, understanding the the vision, the values, uh, you know, what really takes triggers and barriers of certain, you know, demographics, your, your target audience, and, and coming up with that reframing. So um, my, my question, one, one question I was thinking about, there are many questions, you know, always, and I know we can talk 
ad nauseum about so many different things because uh, it's just so exciting to talk to you about these things always. And and I was thinking, does it have to be one meta narrative for uh, for all audiences, or would you be looking at some no. narratives? Um, no, and and I think. Also, I just want to caveat this. This is not my area. Uh, we have a, a brilliant and very talented narrative lead who's looking after all of this. So um, take everything I say with a pinch of salt. Um, don't quote me. Um, but no, I think the idea is to have a meta narrative, but then to have stories, sub, like stories with, that, that align with that meta narrative that can speak to different sectors of society, different types of, of people. So I think, yeah, it's not like a it's just going to be one thing and that's it. No. And I think there has to be continuous production of these stories, but uh, as time goes on and as conditions change and as things happen, um, but still within that kind of framing, that very broad framing of a meta narrative. Right. And, and as you develop it, you also mentioned that um, it, it can't be developed or implemented in isolation, that you would be looking towards, you know, other players. What yes. is your vision of, um, what are those types of organizations or groups that uh, that might um, you know help you in in bringing this to life? Yeah, so we've um, we we are working with an organization called Perk that specialize in um, help uh, like developing narratives for different um, types of movements, um, and their methodology includes having what they call hack days or stakeholder days. So we're actually. Um, planning one for before the end of the year to bring various organizations together so that's in progress and it would be you know I guess key influencer type organizations within the animal movement in the UK we're very UK focused at the moment with the aspiration that if we are successful um, it will inspire you know international kind of um, organizations to be set up and, and movements and such so um, it's very much a work in progress I can't give you uh, uh, great details on who would be involved, but it would be um, influential organizations or different parts of the ecology as well um, in the movement. So I guess representatives of those who would come to those stakeholder days and input and share their ideas and also hopefully, yeah, buy into the approach. Um, yeah. Okay. Great. Um, we'll we'll keep an eye out and watch for you know the space around Animal Think Tank to know more about uh, how you're bringing that meta narrative to um, reality. Um, you were talking about other projects before I really yes. <laughs> no no. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so okay, I'm, what else? I'm thinking about um, okay. There's there's something that around the organization building um you know we've learned so much and we are currently um creating an att handbook which um has is going to have all of our systems and our processes and our policies and how we're doing things all in one place and it'll be open source um and we're, we're currently thinking about it's not been decided but doing like a kind of 10-day international training based on our experience this isn't the right way it's our way that we found that has worked um but we sort of feel like that would be something Something that would be a something that would be a nice contribution to other organisations that, like maybe, if, you know, don't quite understand or know how to go about building foundations, and kind of they don't have to go through the two or three years of learning that we've had to go through, including the tensions and the conflicts and all the fallout and all the rest of it. So that's one thing that's kind of we're thinking about uh, an international training, um, and then the. The, the roles that we're recruiting for currently, social movement, culture lead, political strategy, 
Um, you know, that's all around, okay, so what is the DNA and the foundations of this social movement organization that we're going to seed? And so we're kind of shifting gears from creating a strong foundation of animal think tank to, okay, so we've now created an organization that can seed a social movement organization like Extinction Rebellion, like Animal Rebellion, like Black Lives Matter. Um, and so I think we're really shifting gears into what, what is the DNA? What are the foundations of the movement? Um, and so, for example, from a cultural perspective, that is like, how do we, how, what kind of conflict transformation system would local group, groups need? What kind, what are the principles and values of the wider movement? You know, it, it might be based on what we've developed at ATT, but it has to be relevant to a sort of movement level. Um, and yeah, I think if if we go by our sort of project plan, um, which it probably won't happen this way, but if all goes to plan by next year, in a year's time, we would have developed those and we would have started seeding local groups in the UK. Um, and the idea would be to do mass trainings, to train like maybe a five day kind of training for organizers and groups to set up um, and, you know, hand over the resources and also support and coach and, and what have you groups all over the country who can then have the capacity to create, you know, their own local campaigns, but then also come together for strategic sort of national campaigns that we would um, that we would call help to coordinate. And so that's kind of like what we're aiming for, um, maybe in a year or a year and a half's time. Um, yeah, I think those are the things I haven't missed anything. <laughs> Oh, you're always working on so many amazing things. And, and I'm just so excited, you know, for all the stuff that you've shared and uh, what's in store for the world to see once Animal Think Tank is ready to, you know, share, um, uh, whether it's um, the influential, you know, um, animal rights organizations in the UK that you're going to make a call to, or it's that this international training. Now, now, tell me who would be the ideal recipient of this training? Oh, oh well. animal rights organizations or you know can i raise my hand i would love to be oh, yeah totally <laughs> absolutely no i think i mean i think i don't know because we haven't thought about it too deeply but i think um you know I, in my mind it's those kind of smaller organizations that have great potential because they've got loads of passion and but they don't quite know necessarily how to grow um how to um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, you know, if I was doing this on my own, it would be so difficult, like to know how to go about building my team, developing systems, etc. So I think it's the, the sort of the smaller organisations, but at the same time, um, you know, if people from you know, larger sort of grassroots organizations like SAVE or DXC or whoever, like, I think it's, it's really a call for anybody who actually sees the importance of having like, building the foundations of organizations that can last, basically, rather than just sort of, you know, if you've got an ambition to last a long time and last the long haul, so that we can actually, you know, to the point where we can win, then I think um, it would be very relevant to, to all types of organizations within the animal movement space. 
Right, right. One of our uh, broadcasters and broadcast partners is Plant Pure Communities, you know, and I'm on the Pod Advisory Council with them. And I know uh, many people uh, in the audience are pod leaders. And these are, you know, small pods. They want to do community work. They do a lot of community engaged lifestyle medicine work uh, sometimes. Uh, they're either, either physician led or activist led or just, you know, somebody who has a powerful uh, transformation story of their own and they feel, uh, you know, motivated to start a neighborhood thing and then before they know it you know they're inviting other people and stra other strangers into their home and teaching them how to cook and you know sharing principles of veganism yeah. and, uh, and and the ethical aspects of it and so on so um, so this is this is exciting news that you know people who are wanting to scale up people who uh, believe that now they're not just one but two but three and four and and don't really know the path. Uh, this is an excellent opportunity, so we'll definitely keep an eye out for that from Animal Think Tank. Um, let's shift gears a little bit. You know, let's go back to your um, your personal growth and and you know. So my specific question is is more like a leadership question to you. Um, how has your own personal journey led you to step into your power, Lela? Oh gosh. Well, I haven't fully stepped into my power. I don't think it's a total work in progress. Um, I think, um, you know, I think when I think to kind of like the foundations or the roots of, of where I am now, like my parents played a really, really big role. I have the privilege of coming from a, a family um, that's really loving, but was also um, really focused on on service, on giving generously of time and, and knowledge and those sorts of things. So I think I've grown up, you know, seeing my parents um, doing that and, 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 and yeah, giving um, and making change in the world. Um, and I think, you know, my parents have always, you know, instilled in all of us that we can do whatever we put our minds to. There's no limitation. Um, I mean, there's the limitations that I put on myself, all the false beliefs and narratives and all the rest of it. Um, and I think um, at the moment is, is a process of trying to unlearn some of those things. Um, but I think I never really saw myself as a leader in inverted commas. Um, and I think it's really, you know, I was an expert in my field, um, you know, and had a you know, successful career. And But it was still very much like focused on my expertise and not necessarily like, holding space for others or, or developing teams or those sorts of things. So I think Animal Think Tank has really sort of pushed me into, um, I feel like I'm being called into something. And I think the fears and, and limitations that I might put on myself are kind of put into huge perspective by the, by the cause that I'm working for. Because all of my fears and all of, all of the rest of it kind of pale into comparison when I think about um, the animals. Um, and I think a really another sort of important aspect that I kind of, I guess, I'm really lucky to have a partner who is pretty fearless and thinks that he can do anything, doesn't care what anybody else thinks, and has gone on his own leadership journey and he's, you know, set up a big animal hospital, having no, you know, formal training in business, you know, he's an emergency and critical care vet. And it's grown from like 65 people to 190 people in the last two years. So I have been like walking that journey with him and just seen, you know, I've learned so much by his way of being. And he's like, he has so much more faith in me than I do in myself. And so that kind of makes me want to step um, step into that. Um, so yeah, I think um, I'm realizing that 
if I'm if if we're gonna if we're gonna win, if we're gonna make the changes in the world that we think are needed, then we have to step into our into the fullness of who we are. And I think um, as women, um, I think there's been all sorts of stories that have been told about how we should be and probably um, how we think we should be that we have to unlearn. And I'm in the process of doing that. And and I sort of feel like um, as I as 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 I continue down this path, I'm becoming, I care less what other people think. Um, I'm happy to like, you know, I sort of feel like what I'm, what I'm bringing is enough. It doesn't have to be perfect. The imposter syndrome sort of voice is getting, you know, quieter and quieter as I realize that that is just, you know, the patriarchy. Um, and I just sort of, I'm really motivated by the fact that, um, without wanting to be and realizing that I am, that I am, I think, a role model for younger women in our organization and the people that we work with. So I have to be unapologetically myself and give, and that gives permission for others to be unapologetically themselves and bring their full selves. So that's what I am kind of working on at the moment. And yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah, it, it, this is awesome. You know, you, you mentioned, um, how you you're stepping into your own right and you're you're embracing your own self and yeah. that is critical because if we don't then who will and when others um who look up to us you know in our organizations or even outside of the organization they've got to see us role modeling that yeah. unapologetic embracing of oneself yeah um, the other thing you mentioned was it's critical for women to support other women because there is enough, you know, with the patriarchy trying to pull us down anyway, right? So uh, women supporting other women is critically important for yeah. the animal rights movement and the vegan movement, intersectional vegan movement, plant-based movement. Um, I, I totally agree with you. Cannot emphasize this, um, you know, any anymore because, well, when you look at the U.S., 79% of the animal rights activists here are women. So it is a, a women-led movement yeah. and, and we are the face of it. Um, and, and our voices deserve to be united, um, yeah. you know, versus conflict and you know, dragging somebody down and, and all of that, which are human tendencies, but I, I guess the, you know, the movement calls for us to rise above that. Yeah. Um, Leila, you, you want to say something else? We, we are running oh, out of time, but, okay. I, okay. but I will uh, let you have the last word. Tell us. I, I, what was coming up for me then is that, you know, the way that I used to think of leadership, I think is a very masculine model of leadership of individual kind of hero, savior, um, comp competition over collaboration, etc. And what I'm learning is a sort of more feminine way of leadership. It's relational, it's collaboration. It's not just using logic and rationality. There's a place for emotions and intuition. Um, and I really, I, if we want to win, if we want to build a powerful movement, we all have to be powerful individuals. And that looks different for everybody. And I kind of feel like we have to embody that if we want others to also embody that and have a leaderful movement. Yes, exactly. And, and um, yeah, and, and coming into our divine feminine, you know, and, and embracing femininity and coming yeah. up with female um, leadership models, which can look very differently depending on, you know, the person, because we've got to allow for personality and, and so on, but still find a way to make it collaborative versus the alpha male competitive, I'm top of the herd, uh, you know, yeah. 
call me the team lead. And if you don't call me the team lead, then, you know, I'm, I'm not going to work with you, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and that conventional vocabulary, uh, a lot of times we forget it is the male patriarchal um, conventional definition of leadership that's whispering into our ear. And, and sometimes we're unable to dissociate from it because we don't know what our model of leadership is. Um, Lila Kasim, you're always an inspiration to talk with. And, you know, every single time I have a conversation with you, I'm like, oh my God, I'm blown away. What is it that you can't do and you aren't doing? And, and it's, uh, you know, you've written the book. You've, you've uh, reminded me many times. You've edited, you've co-edited. Yes. As far as I'm concerned, you're the author of it. But you know, I, I, I take what you, uh, how you want to characterize that. You've got a book, which is awesome. Um, you know, I invite our viewers to go check out, uh, you know, the, the work that you've put in at inclusiveresponsibility.earth. Um, I know you're no more accepting applications for Animal Think Tank for these roles, but there are other roles that might be up on your website. Um, so whoever's interested anywhere in the world, um, please, um, you know, definitely check it out, animalthinktank.org forward slash join dash us. And uh, with that, Leila, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. And I learned so much from you. And I hope our, uh, you know, viewers also enjoyed listening to you today. Oh, thank you, Nivi. It's been such a pleasure. <laughs>